Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. And joining me this morning, I have two guests joining me this morning. Gloria Felt is one of them. She's the former CEO of Planned Parenthood. And her new book is called uh, no Excuses, Nine Ways Women Can Change the Way They Think About Power. Gloria is a trailblazer. She's been described by that, by Vanity Fair, Women of the Year by Glamour Magazine, and teaches women power and leadership at Arizona State University. Um, was called the voice of experience by People Magazine, and she's been widely quoted in American media, including the New York Times, Washington Post, and USA Today. My second guest in the second half hour of the show is Scott Biddle. He's an award-winning journalist, a policy analyst, and web producer. Um, he is also a senior fellow at Public Agenda and blogs frequently for the Huffington Post and National Geographic. His new book is Where Did the Jobs Go and How Do We Get Them Back? Uh, his book is all giving us a guided tour to America's employment crisis. But first, Gloria Felt, welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning. Thank you, Catherine. I'm just delighted to be here. Well, it's uh, you know this is a topic that I always enjoy talking about: women and power. Women and power, and of course, your book really touched on some of my issues. I'm sure not just mine, obviously, my listeners and many, many other women. But uh, no excuses. Nine women. Nine ways women can change the way they think about power. What's wrong with the way we think about power? Why did you write this book? Why do we need to? I mean, obviously, there is something we're not doing right when it has to do with power, whether, as you say, in the bedroom politically, jobs, wherever it is. Yes, and, and, and I, I try to take the positive perspective because I, I'm, I've been a practical activist all my life, and I think there are way too many books that talk about what women do wrong. You know, what, 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 what's wrong with us, what, what, why yeah. things are like they are, it's all our fault, right? Yep. Which is so kind I, of the I way really I guess I I really, I really uh, have taken a more, more expansive look at it, but what I, the, here's why I wrote No Excuses. I was trying to figure out why it is that despite all the doors being open for women, despite our having gotten rid of discriminatory laws, almost for the, almost all of them, pretty much they're all gone, um, and despite the fact that, that you can still say there are some cultural issues that we have to deal with, there's really nothing standing in the way of women reaching parity in all of these different arenas, except what? What? I had to figure out what. I, I, and, and what got me obsessed thinking about it was in 2008 during the uh, election cycle then, gosh, can you believe we're going through another one already, but uh, 
So I, it was at the moment when it, everybody was talking about Hillary Clinton as though she was the slam-dunk, sure-thing Democratic candidate. And, of course, we know that is not the way it all played out. And I was writing an article for Elle magazine on women in politics, and the, uh, it was intended to be a sort of a, a, a nice piece on the many organizations that help women run for office now, like the White House Project, the Women's Campaign Fund. Uh, there are so many now that help women run for office, and they spend millions of dollars doing this. I found out they hadn't moved the dial in 20 years that women were still, at the rate we were going, it would take 70 more years for women to reach parity in politics. And since I had been working in, in, to try to help advance women for, for decades, I thought, you know, I can't wait that long. I have to try to figure out what's going on. Okay, and, so what is, let's take that one, women in politics. We haven't, it's going to, as you say, the prediction would be it would take another 70 years for us to have parity in politics. So I don't want to ask the question, what are we doing wrong, because we want to make it positive, but shall we just say, why? 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 That's the question. And, and, and it was, and I, so I decided to do some research, looked at what the researchers were saying, looked, I interviewed women all across the country, and I had to look into my own heart and soul also to think about, well, what, what is it that has, what is it that is making this happen? And what I realized, what I found when I, when I did this was that we have in our minds, an out, we have a real resistance to power. We have, a, we have an ambivalent relationship toward power. Very often we'll say we want it, but then we, we also don't want it at the same time. And when I ask women how much, they, how much they like power, almost nobody will say, will raise their hand and say, I really like power, I really want it. And in fact, very often they'll say, oh, it's a negative thing. I don't like the word, I don't like the concept, I don't like the idea. The reason I discovered is that we have an outdated definition of power in our minds. Power has previously been associated with brute force or the power to make you do something, the power over. Well, who wants that kind of power? Women have been discriminated against. We've been raped. We've been the ones who've borne the brunt of the negative aspects of it. But once we began to talk about power as the power to, the power to accomplish things, the power to make life better for ourselves, our families, our children, our world, I would see women's faces relax. And so that became then the basis for figuring out the rest of it and for figuring out the nine power tools that could help women not only think differently about power, although that's where it has to begin. We have to literally think differently about it. Once we do that, then we can apply these nine different power tools and they can help us deal with those situations that have been uncomfortable for us in the past and that has, have kept us basically from realizing our full potential. But, Gloria, what about men when they're defining what power is? I mean, that's who we're up against if we want to be the CEO of, the, of a company or if we want to be the President of the United States. Um, so, and they have a different definition of what power is. How does that fit with our definition is women power to you say not power over right it's a, it's a, that's a, a wonderful question and and it's it's i think that the answer to in the answer to that question is the opportunity for women to transform what leadership has been it's it's our opportunity to transform the corporate cultures it's, the, it's our opportunity to transform the whole issue of power, and I believe that the power, too, is fundamentally about leadership. It's fundamentally about 
enabling people to get things done in a positive way. So, um, so yes, you're up against men, but but let's say that that you are. You can't expect anyone to step aside. The door may be open, but if you can't expect other people to step aside for you to go through it. You have to have the courage and the intention, the power of intention. What men have more of than women is not ambition, I discovered. It, women have plenty of ambition, but we tend to, to use our ambition for other people, for, for other things besides ourselves. What women are not socialized even today to have is the level of intention that men have about their lives of what they intend to do with their lives. And, and I think that's it's not an easy fix, but it is something that can be done. And I think the programs that you're now seeing that help young women, that help girls to actually have more of that kind of intention and more of those leadership skills, I think that they will change the entire culture for another generation out. So you think there'll be a shift in, in this generation because these women are being trained and taught and have, they're differently, their attitudes towards power is different. But what always comes back to me is also women are physically different than men. They bear the children. They have, they, and you talk about their, you know, the idea of what we think is our intentions are different. I think our intentions are different with our families, which somehow affects the way we see ourselves as powerful people in the external world as a CEO of a company or, you know, a senator or president of the United States. It really doesn't seem to be as much that as, I mean, actually, as my daughter keeps reminding me, being a mother is the most powerful thing in the whole world. Yeah, I agree with her. <laughs> and, and, and the positive, very positive thing is that women like you and me are bearing the next generation of men, too, or have borne the next generation of men, too. And as, uh, the, I think that, the, that women have changed men as much as they've changed themselves, frankly, over the last generation or two. And, and so I think actually that the greatest allies for women now in changing things about how, how uh, families operate as well as how things operate in the workplace and in politics, our, our biggest allies now are younger men who want to have a different kind of life also. I, I, know, I mean, younger men are much more engaged in, with their children, for example, from birth. Uh, my father... I, yeah, I agree for, with you. I mean, I raised three men and... Um, that was one of my goals, exactly what you're talking about. It was my responsibility to raise, I felt, a different generation of men who had a different attitude towards women. And that has, yes, a rippling effect. It changes everything. It's it not does just change to, everything. Yeah. yeah, they have very, very different expectations. I think the hard part is that the, the, the business culture particularly hasn't really changed to the extent it needs to yet. And nor has the political culture changed, obviously. But we're we're seeing young younger a, a nice crowd of younger women now who are starting out in politics when they're young enough to actually achieve seniority, which makes all the difference in in the political field because it's 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 time and grade that gets you the committee chairmanships, and that's who sets the agenda. That's who decides what bills are going to be heard. That's who decides what what is important. Uh, in terms of policy discussions. And with the latest crop of women in Congress, for example, you've got Kirsten Gillibrand, you've got Debbie Wasserman Schultz, Schultz you've yeah. got women who are starting out young enough, and they are modeling, in fact, how you can 
have a life and have a career in politics. Yeah, they're great examples, those three, and I was going to mention them as well. I think they're terrific examples. Can we, do we have examples, though? That's one. That's politics. What about in the corporate culture? Like, do we have any women who have run businesses and, you know, run, you know power to uh, with a, that kind of an attitude and have been very successful as the head of major corporations? I, I, uh, I, I'm sure that there are, as heads of major corporations, I, I, I have interviewed several and spoken with several who are at the chief operating officer or very senior vice president level who are doing some amazing things as well. And very often those are the people who have their fingers in the daily changes that can be made. I have an interview in the book, for example, with a woman named Julie Gilbert, who was, uh, she's now doing this uh, on her own. She created her own her own company now to do this more broadly with other companies as well. But she worked for Best Buy. She was a senior vice president with Best Buy, which was one of the classic archetypical corporations that was built by men for men when men were running the workplace and women were at home taking care of the 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 house and the children and men at the beginning of best buy men were buying all of the gadgets that the organization sold well what happened over the years is that women now have 85 percent of the buying power we buy 85 percent of the consumer goods and women are now intimately involved in the purchases of the of the particularly the electronic gadgets and things like that and the home things that, that Best Buy sells. So Julie real, found this, really realized this. She was the first one in the company to realize this by interviewing customers in their homes. And their assumption was that the men were making the purchases, and it turned out that the women were actually making more of the buying decisions. And she started looking at because she was trying to solve the problem of why were they why did they have such huge turnover among their female employees and why were so few women in the upper echelons? Well, it, it turned out to be the entire corporate culture that was based on that theory that they had about men being the ones who were their customers. And she said, I would watch the few women who who worked there come to work in the morning. I saw that it was as though they got out of their cars and they put on a suit of armor. They changed completely to different people. And so she began to create a leadership program for the women in the company that greatly reduced turnover of female employees and ended up greatly increasing the number of women in the upper echelons of the company and in the process changed the culture of the company to one that did recognize and respect the role of women in a very different kind of way. So it's a long-term process. It doesn't happen immediately. But that's one example of many. That's a great example. And, and Best Buy, I mean, that's a great example because that's obviously selling stuff that women didn't, we don't think of women as traditionally buying or be particularly good at selling technology, those kinds of things. So, yeah, that's a great example of uh, Julie Gilbert. So she was the, uh, what did you say, the CFO of that company? She, I, that, I don't recall her exact title, yeah. but that would have been more or less the, the position that she held. You know, getting back to the title of the book, Nine Ways Women Can Change the Way They Think About Power, let's talk about, I mean, we've covered some of them, but, uh, you know, there's a couple more in the book which, that I'd like to address. So, you know, we don't have to go through all nine. <laughs> I'll listen to no, we'll the just book. give a little taste of a couple yeah. of them. Okay. 
Go ahead. You pick one that you think oh, would be. Oh, you'd yeah. like me to pick one. Yeah, okay, yeah. this is always very difficult because I know. <laughs> picking, picking the ones out of, out of it's like picking which child you like the most. Uh, exactly. I, I love all of them. But I think I will start with the one that is probably, if you could only choose one, it would be the most important one. Define your own terms first before someone else defines you. And this has to do in part with women's communication style and some things we need to learn about that. And it has to do with understanding that whoever defines the debate usually wins it. Whoever sets the agenda usually gets what they want out of the meeting. And that everybody is going to be defined in some way. So better for you to define yourself. An example of, of the communications issues that have to do with women having been, you know, we, we're taught to be nice. We're taught to be considerate of other people and to listen to what other people say. That's a good thing. I, I mean, I think men should be, be taught more of that, too. But what happens in the world of, of, of work is that uh, how many times have, have you seen, have, have you been in a meeting where you've given an idea and nobody paid any attention to it, and three minutes later a man says the same thing and everybody says, oh, that's, that's a great idea, John. We love that. We think we'll do that. I, I just haven't run into a woman yet who hasn't had that experience. And so what, what, we, what we can do is we can learn skills about saying the first word, saying the last word, and making sure that we're, that we're speaking up, that we're offering at least one idea in a very straightforward way at every meeting that we're in. Gloria, why do they do that to us? Why do they? And, and you're right. I, I mean, I've experienced that same kind of scenario it's situation. It's maddening, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is. And it, is it because of, I mean, get, I'd like to get really specific about that because I think that happens not just in the boardroom. It can happen anywhere. I have a boyfriend of 25 years, and we can be in a situation, and I'll say something, and I, you know, I'm, I'm a little lady. He's six feet tall. There's a lot of physical stuff that there's the difference. And I can say the same thing and be dismissed, and he will say something, and, oh, they're listening. Yes, yes, exactly. So, and because we are generally smaller in stature, we, we need to learn skills, and we can learn these skills of, of speaking in simple declarative sentences, of asserting ourselves in a very straightforward kind of way. You know, women tend to use many more words than men. But the other thing that we do very often is let me let me give you this example from the a Today Show that I was watching one time. This was right after the financial meltdown was at its worst, and Matt Lauer was inter- was interviewing two people, a man and a woman, clearly both experts in the financial field. The woman was sitting right next to Matt. The man was on the other side of her. And Matt threw the first question to her. I mean, it was obvious if you were watching the show, he asked her this question. Instead of immediately answering it, she took a split second and looked at the man who just picked up on it right away, was going 90 miles a minute, took over the whole conversation, and she never really got her words in edgewise. But it it was a split-second kind of subtle thing. It was the kind of thing that we're taught to do to be kind and considerate of other people. But sometimes when we do that, we're not doing service to ourselves either. And, again, it, it keeps us – I mean, this isn't a battle for more airtime, but it's, it's, a, it's a, an issue of if we know something, if we have something to contribute to the conversation, we should take our opportunity to do that. 
So it has to do with our style, not our content. We may have exactly the same or very similar content to offer, but our style puts us in a a position where people aren't listening to us. I do things like, and this is a personal example, I'll use my radio voice, and it always disarms people Ah. because it doesn't fit perhaps my persona in terms of the way I look. So they're expecting kind of a little voice and a you know a little you know um, perhaps not as I don't want to use the word aggressive but mm-hmm. not as forceful mm-hmm. and so it's 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 very interesting and I kind of watch it unfold because the expectation is always very different than when I do the presentation. Well, I I think for women who have experienced this problem of not feeling they're not being listened to in a business meeting, that perhaps if they simply make it a point to come into the meeting and prepared, and they're going to give at least one very substantive recommendation during the course of every single meeting. And they're not going to let this knowledge that they may not be listened to as astutely keep them from doing that. And I think the practice of doing that over time will eventually change the dynamic. I think you have to really, I, I agree with you, and, I, and I, I keep getting back to it, but it's not, to me, it's not simply the content of what you have to say. It may be far and above what the man that, sitting next to you has, but really the presentation of it is so important. I was yes. interviewing lawyers, so I was going to hire, or am going to hire, and there was one firm, and this particular uh, attorney was a, is a woman, and she, what her what she had to say in terms of answering my questions, I mean, it was you know she was right on target, but there was kind of a meekness to her presentation and the way she communicated with me that gave me pause to want to hire her because I saw her as perhaps interacting with uh, you know with my people that I'm dealing with uh, in the same way. And I, I don't know if this is what you're talking about. Yes, uh, that's absolutely a part of it. There are to be. Even more specific, there are things that we can do, like uh, or that women often do, as a, as speech patterns, ending a sentence as though it's a question. For example, that doesn't help. That doesn't help. Again, simple declarative sentences. I have to tell myself this every day. I feel like I need <laughs> to make myself a, you know, I need to put this on top of my computer. Simple declarative sentences, and asking for what you want straightforwardly and directly. Not manipulating. Right. You deserve it. So why not you? Yeah, why not you? Define your own terms. Define your own terms. I think that, yeah, that's key. That's number one. I mean, we only have a few minutes left. Let's just go for a second one. Okay, I'll tell you what the one that I think is the most fun. And this one is really hard for women. It's embrace controversy. If you want to know another answer to why women are not as likely to enter politics or to put themselves forward for high positions, it's because there, there is a resistance to the conflict that you get into when you have to take positions on, on issues. What I learned from having the opportunity to, to be a spokesperson for arguably the most controversial issue in the world is that controversy is actually your friend. The controversy is a moment when you realize the issue you're talking about is important enough for people to care about. They're listening to you. They're, you've got a platform. You, it, it doesn't mean be mean and nasty. It means don't be afraid of controversy. Don't be afraid of the conflict because it actually can help you 
have an opportunity to tell people what you think, to show people what you have learned or what you believe about whatever the issue is. And you can take that controversy and ride into it and use the energy of it to help propel you to where you want to go. That's great advice. I, I agree with that. The, the only thing I think that women get hung up on is they're still the controversy they see as important. And um, But the problem is women get hung up on they're concerned about what other people think of them. Or they, I mean, basically, they won't like me if I'm, if I, if I'm, if I, I don't even have to be nasty, but I just kind of don't want people not to like me. Mm. This is kind of, I see a lot of women, even younger women, who still are concerned about how people feel with them, even in the context of controversy in a business situation, for instance. Catherine, I think you've put your finger on the most critical issue for women. And as I mentioned earlier, it's that in our socialization, we are still taught to think first of what other people think of us. And it's not that that's not important. And and frankly, I think it's one of the things that, that men could benefit from caring more about. But... We, we're, we're, our, our task and our challenge is to create that kind of self-confidence within ourselves, that understanding of that, of our own personal power too, as I call it, that will help us to know that, well, we'd like for people to like us, but what's more important is for us to be authentic. What's more important is really authenticity, to feel that what I'm saying, what I'm doing, are congruent with what I really believe as a human being. And I'll tell you, that is so liberating and so empowering that once you've done that, you, you, you sort of can't do anything else. Yeah. That, I mean, I think that says it all. And, and that's, that's re- if you, we should, you know, we're gonna, we have about a minute left, but I really want to leave on that one because you can't really argue with authenticity. And that does go with our upbringing as women. If you are really authentic, if you really, and some of this, I mean, this is, I'm adding this, it sounds kind of cliche but see, seeking the truth, um, the, and honest and authenticity, if you keep those words in mind, I think you're, you're right. Then the controversy, um, you know, it becomes second. You don't have to worry about that. You don't have to worry about people, whether they're going to like you or not, because you're being authentic. Right. And, Catherine, I think this is such an amazing moment for women. And it, we can help each other. We can help each other move move on to the next level where everybody, male and female, can, can lead lives that really are unlimited by anything other than what we choose. And, and that is my passion now. I, I, I feel like I've, I, my whole life has been about helping women to achieve equality in a variety of different ways. But for me, it's the inner struggle now that I feel is one that we have to pay the most attention to in order to enable us to be the best we can be, to achieve the things we want to achieve. And, uh, and I just see no limits for women in the future. I think it's a very, very exciting, powerful, and empowering moment. And I, I love talking to women about it. I love doing workshops, telling people more about how you can actually apply these nine power tools and lead an unlimited life. Well, Gloria felt you are the person to do it. And... Uh... I want to, I'll mention the book one more time um, because I think it's, it's, it's really important that, that women get out there no, and buy the book, No Excuses, Nine Ways Women Can Change the Way They Think About Power. And also, where can we see you? I know you're, you're all across the country giving speeches. Um, 
as you say, motivating women to get out there and do what they have to do. So where's your next stop if anybody's interested or can uh, actually uh, go to one of your conferences? Well, I, w- I would suggest that um, you can follow me on Twitter and on Facebook. My website is GloriaFelt.com, and it felt is spelled with a D, just to confuse people a little bit, GloriaFelt, F-E-L-D-T, dot com. And I keep all my uh, events posted on my website so that it's easy for people to find out. I'm hunkered down right now finishing up a few projects before the paperback version of No Excuses launches on Leap Day. I thought that would be a fun day for a book about women in power to, to launch. And my, um, I will be, um, uh, importantly, in St. Louis on International Women's Day, March 8th, speaking for Left Bank Bookstore. And um, in between, I'm doing some webinars, and um, I think... Um, I think that's the next really big event. And we can go to your website, GloriaFelt.com. Yes. And get all this information. It was really a pleasure to talk to you today. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you, Catherine. It was just delightful. Great. We're going to take a short break right now. Uh, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. You can listen to us every Wednesday at 10 o'clock a.m. Eastern Time, and uh, each one of the shows is archived on Voice America. So don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Do you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern, for the Money Answer Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Tune in every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time for The Growth Strategist with Aldana Ambler. On the show, Aldana and some of today's top business professionals will discuss some of today's most pressing business issues that hold you, the business owner, back. Aldana will also give you 21 ways to grow with her list of growth strategies. Grow smart, grow profit, and grow your business with Aldana Ambler and the Grow Strategist every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. Now there's a new destination for video content, voiceamerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7, voiceamerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. 
You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with the microphone. You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. You can listen to us every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Eastern on Voice America. And uh, at the end of the day, we archive the show, and you can uh, download it and uh, put it on an MP3. Uh, my next guest is uh, the author of Where Did the Jobs Go and How Do We Get Them Back? Your Guided Tour to America's Employment Crisis. Scott Biddle is my guest, and he co-authored the book with Gene Johnson. As we all know, there's nothing more fundamental, says he, to a decent life in America than having a job. Well, not just he, all of us. And uh, our in this recent uh, speeches by our Democratic and Republican contenders for the 212 presidential race, the subject of unemployment remains the main topic. Yet most of us, and I, Scott is an award-winning journalist, policy analyst, and web producer, as well as an author, and uh, he also blogs for the Huffington Post and National Geographic. And so his new book, Where Do the Jobs Go and How Do We Get Them Back?, is not one of those kind of, and I am going to say, deadly books for politicians and professors that none of us can understand. But his book was written for the for us, for the lay public. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Scott. Thanks for having me. Okay, why did you write the book? I mean, I maybe it seems obvious, but uh, you know, jobs, jobs, jobs. Where do they come from? Why is everybody? Lo- none of us really seem to understand it and don't really know know where to go with it in terms of public policy. Well, I think that was what we were trying to address. I mean, the the debate we're having on this most fundamental issue has really been superficial in terms of the political debate and and the media debate and doesn't really cover some of the really staggering trends that uh that people are dealing with. And as you say, Jobs are fundamental. It's no wonder why it's the biggest question for people in the polls, the biggest concern. I mean, if you're unemployed in America, your your life falls apart and because you're depending on your job for so much more than just a paycheck, for your benefits, for status in society, all all these issues. So it really strikes at the heart of who people are and, and what they're worried about. And it just seems like the political debate skirts over a lot of the key questions. So we were trying to arm people with laying out the facts, letting them make up their own minds, and laying out the pros and cons of these various trends and possible alternatives. All right. So, I mean, you do that, you know, there's an overview just in the preface, I mean, which is, uh, you know, kind of, which is great, and it gives you kind of a, a an overview of where you're going in the book. Um Let's just kind of start with that because, all right, with the title of the book, where did the jobs go? What is happening? Why, you know, is, is this something that's short term or are we going to get the jobs back in 20 years or are there different jobs or, you know, let's start with where we are right now. I think the biggest thing is that we're dealing with two things at the same time and either would be enormous on its own. One is, of course, the Great Recession which took out 8.5 million jobs, which is staggering, staggering number of jobs lost just because of the financial crisis and, and the aftermath of that. And yet, even before 2008, even before the, the financial crisis hit, 
the jobs engine was sputtering. We only broke even on creating jobs in the last 10 years, which hasn't happened in decades. And that's because of some long-term trends that are really changing the nature of work in America. You have technology, which is automating more and more jobs and enabling to be done in different places. And then you have globalization, where we're competing with everyone, everywhere. And that's shifting the ground under our feet. It's almost as if you were dealing with the Great Depression and the Industrial Revolution at the same time. Either would be huge. Both at the same time is really unprecedented. That's, I mean, I think you've defined the problem well for you know us to understand. Um, and I think you know, you're, yeah, the the Great Depression and industrialization uh, together are, are catastrophic. So, what do we do about it? Well, I think we have to start thinking about how those long-term trends play out. I mean, in the short. Yes, eventually the economy will recover. And there are a number of short-term things we can do. And that's mostly what our political leaders are talking about, kind of short-term stimulus. The harder thing is to grapple with these long-term trends. What kind of jobs are actually going to be here? What are the trends are in jobs? I mean, we do have lots of cards to play here in terms of adapting to it. We can look at our educational system and how you know, we train people for future, for future jobs. We can look at our infrastructure and whether or not we've got all the support systems that are needed for jobs. And we have one huge advantage, which is this is still a country that's very much about innovation. And if you look at where new jobs are coming from, they're coming from new businesses. Businesses less than five years old create the lion's share of new jobs. What are some of those new businesses? Well, if I think you can, it's the whole range of businesses under five years. It can, we often focus on technology-related jobs and that sort of thing because that's the glamour part of it. But all the, everything from the restaurant, the new restaurant in your neighborhood to, you know, new high-tech smartphones, it's all creating new stuff. So I think one of the things that gets confused is people start talking about, well, small businesses create jobs. Actually, what's happening is new businesses create jobs, and new businesses start out small. And do you think the changing demographics, the population, you know, technology is where we are today. You liken that to the Industrial Revolution. And you have still a lot of people in the workforce. I mean, I'm a baby boomer, and some of the baby boomers at the other end in their 50s and 60s uh, aren't really tech-savvy or not technologically savvy enough to do really well in businesses. And this is, I mean, this once they leave the workforce or die out, that it will, the kind of job situation on some levels will correct itself because you're going to have a whole new generation of people who are tech-savvy and who will be able to take on these new kinds of jobs because a lot of those old jobs are kind of going, or old businesses are going, are not going to be here anymore anyway. Well, that is true. And one of the things that's most intriguing, it's one of the areas where economists have the biggest divergence of opinion, 
is what are the baby boomers going to do? Are they going to work longer? Are they going to retire as planned? And how does that affect the economy? I mean, if the baby boomers, you know, retire, as, you know, as people have retired in the past, you could in the long run actually end up with, a, you know, employment shortages, particularly in certain areas. On the other hand, if they keep working longer, then the employment situation doesn't change that much. It's also interesting that this is going to hit different industries in different ways. As you point out, you know, younger people are much more likely to go into high-tech kind of industries. But if you look at some other industries like utilities, the proportion of older workers and baby boomers in the workforce is actually quite high. And public utilities may actually have difficulty finding enough people to take those jobs and replace the people who are retiring. And, of course, that does have implications for the broader economy because how are we going to move to green jobs, for example, and alternative energy and all those other issues without strong support from the utilities industry? So it plays out in interesting ways. Yeah, it does. What about the uh, uh, the demographics in terms of people who are out of jobs, who are you know who are not employed, who are could be employed or are eligible to be employed? I mean, age wise, I mean, do we? Ha- I mean, obviously we must we have those statistics. Yes, I think the most actually the most interesting statistic and perhaps the one worth watching most closely is the fact that is the question of education, in that less educated workers uh, are getting hit harder. And the unemployment rate in different, you know, does vary by, by a whole range of segments. But basically, if you have a college education, you earn more of your life over your lifetime, and you're less likely to be unemployed. This but not all college degrees are created alike. And one of the things with technology and globalization is we're seeing even some fairly high-skilled jobs start moving offshore. So the calculus isn't as simple as more education equals more security. It's really depending on what kind of education you have and in what kind of field. I mean, for example, we're seeing things like uh, companies using Costa Rican accounting firms to deal with their tax their tax issues. Uh, we're seeing uh, radiologists in other countries looking at MRIs for diagnosis in the United States. So even high-skilled jobs could be done elsewhere, given the way the landscape is changing. On the other hand, other kinds of jobs have to stay here. If it's the, if it's a CPA who's doing an on-site audit, well, then they have to be on-site. Um, your radiologist could be somewhere else, but your surgeon really needs to be in the room with you. It's not going to work any other way. So I th- you have to think about you know, not just what kind of job, but where it might be done. 
Well, very often you hear people, and I always kind of like, and I describe it in some ways as crying in our soup. All these jobs are going overseas, and we have to bring them back. And it was kind of this huge generalization. Well, they're they are some of they are going to go overseas. You've just described some of them that can be done. You don't have to be on site. Well, that's a given. They're not going to come back here. So, so we spend a lot of time, it seems to me, kind of wishing that things were the way they were and they're not going to be and that we have to look and see the way they are and then go from there. Does that make sense? It does. I mean, on some of these things, you simply cannot turn back the tide. And plus the fact, you know, it's also that the world is changing. One of the reasons why, you know, engineers in India are competitive and why other jobs can be done overseas is because those countries are building new infrastructure. Their populations are becoming more educated. They're becoming more competitive. There are some really interesting studies on this, uh, particularly some economists at Princeton who looked at uh, outsourcing. And the biggest factors in whether a job uh, is done can be moved overseas isn't whether or isn't wages necessarily or skill levels. It's whether it requires face-to-face communication and whether it has to be done in a specific location. And if you apply that standard, about three-quarters of the jobs in America are pretty much safe. You couldn't move them if you wanted to. On the other hand, about a quarter could on paper. But just because you could do it on paper doesn't mean it's practical in, in, in the real world. So it's not – some of those things, as you say, are not coming back. But the question is, what new jobs are being created and what you know, new innovations can we come up with? Well, we talk about infrastructure. I mean, creating a new infrastructure, is that going to help the economy? If we, uh, Because there are a lot of jobs which would be available if we – improved our infrastructure. Is that true? Well, certainly. You can put people to work improving infrastructure, and we're going to have to do it anyway. I mean, the reality is that a lot of our infrastructure is getting old. There are estimates that you know 30% of our power grid is more than 40 years old. If you look at the interstate highway system, that was, you know, started, some of those started in the 50s. And particularly if you can contrast it with what's happening in countries like China, who are building their infrastructure now, so they're building it new. So infrastructure, A, can put people to work in the short term, but B, also lays foundation for the future. If we're going to move, to example, for green, to green jobs, well, then we need a better power grid. We need to upgrade it. It's so I would say that we have to upgrade it. I mean, I would use the word have to. I mean, my experience is you know, to be a, 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 a player and to be a country that is powerful within this, the globalization of all these countries, you have to have, I mean, this is, you have to have a strong infrastructure. And you just mentioned, I mean, you mentioned a couple things um, in terms of our infrastructure, that we, that our power grid, for instance, but also... I mean, you travel around the world, our airports are dated, our train stations are dated, um, our, our malls are dated. I mean, I was recently, or this summer, in, in Seoul, in South Korea, and this is 12 million people in, in Seoul. 
and their infrastructure is incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and ours looks like a you know kind of a dated giant. And I'm not sure that a lot of Americans see that or feel that. We, you know, you, we can't go ahead unless we, any country that was ever powerful or strong had a good infrastructure, right? That's what made us strong in the turn of the century. And we're not doing it. And well, absolutely. I don't think it's just, and you know, Scott, I don't think it's just the countries, just China or even Korea, but the European countries now have, you know, even, and they're obvious, they're also in an economic crisis, but they've also, since World War II, been building themselves up. So if you go to an airport, let's say in, in Germany or Switzerland, I mean, they are leaps ahead of us in terms of how they're organized, whether it's the security or how you board a plane or get off or access to restaurants or, you know, all of those kinds of things. We are really antiquated and dated in terms of our infrastructure, and it's getting worse. Well, and as you point out, a lot of these issues are pay me now or pay me later because eventually things actually start failing and you can't put them off anymore. And that's all, this is all part of the calculus that companies make when they decide where to locate, where to locate plants and, and where to build businesses. People tend to think it's a simple calculation on wages. You know, country A is cheaper than country B. There's actually quite a bit of other factors in there, the stability of the country, the infrastructure, um, the reliability of the legal system, you know, what kind of support, uh, general support is there, shipping costs. And all these factors play into that, we generally don't talk about those. If you look at the international rankings, um, some you know nonpartisan world organizations you know rate the United States still as among the most competitive in the world because of all these all these other factors and being a good place to do business. But you have to keep investing. You have to keep tending these things. It's not like on all of these measures you do it once and then you're done. It's, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, it's not. It's, it, it continually is evolving, and we continually have to be on top of it. Agreed. Um, I'm not so sure where they're doing that. Will you also address, and I probably bring this up at every show, I think in, how does it stand us in terms of, of jobs and economy, in terms of the fact that we, um, we're, we're bloated, we're, we're sedentary, we're overweight, we're obese. I mean, what what we spend billions of dollars on health care for, uh, you know, type 2 diabetes, amongst other things. How does that affect our economy and our ability to do work and to work well and to be efficient and motivated? Well, it's all part of, it's all part of that overall picture. And certainly if, uh, certainly health care costs factor into business decisions, factor in them, you know, in a very large way. So that has huge implications for what um, what businesses choose to do. I mean, certainly a lot of the work we're doing now is, in this country is service work, and it's you know communications work and analytical work and so on. So it's not the kind of heavy physical labor that was standard in the past but certainly the overall health of a country is part of its overall competitiveness. So we're, we have a few minutes left. Um, 
where do we go from here? Give us, besides reading your book. <laughs> we need to. We haven't covered the whole book, obviously. There's a lot to cover. And let's well, let's mention the website. Anyway, the title of the book is Where Do the Jobs Go and How Do We Get Them Back? Scott Biddle mm-hmm. and Gene Johnson. So uh, the website that we can go to is what? WhereDidTheJobsGo.org. And where we'll be, you know, continuing to to write about these topics and uh, and talking about them. And I think one of the thing, one of the most important things we can do going forward, is start having a discussion about where the economy of the future is going, and really looking at the alternatives for getting there. We're not doing a very good job in our current situation, in terms of looking at the challenges and weighing the pros and cons. We have these very narrow discussions on taxes, for example. Are you still there? I think I lost you, Scott. But... We only have a few minutes left. Um, I will mention that I don't know. I, I can't hear him now. But anyway, I'll mention the uh, the website again because you can, if you want to learn more about uh, the book and what Scott Biddle and Gene Johnson are doing and write about, because they do write for the uh, Huffington Post, uh, is where did the jobs go dot org, um, and you can um, buy the book at bookstores everywhere online. Um, and if you want to get in touch with Scott, you can. Uh, if you want to listen to the show again, as I said, the show is going to be archived at the end of the day. Uh, we'll have to have him back on again. I don't know where he went. Something with uh, talk about infrastructure. Something wrong with the telephone, I guess. He hasn't not being able to be connected. But uh, I, I also um, want to mention a couple of other books, or one of the other books that Scott uh, wrote with. I think he wrote it with Gene Johnson. Uh, called Has America Lost Its Mojo? That's one, and Just the Facts. That's a, that's the second book that he that he wrote. Um, so he's, and they're also kind of tied in to this book as well. Um, where do the jobs go to? So you may want to read, even read those books first. Has America Lost Its Mojo? And Just the Facts. And as I said again, he blogs for the Huffington Post. Um, I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with a microphone, and you have been listening to me. And I also want to mention you can listen to my show on Thursdays, uh, my new show, which is no longer a new show. We've been, uh, air, we've, I guess we've been broadcasting now for almost a year called The Social Workers, and that's uh, 90.9 FM at Albany, in Albany, New York, and we broadcast from the radio stations in, uh, at the University at Albany. It's The Social Workers. I co-host the show with Hillary Kloss. She's an MSW student. And you can listen to us every Thursday at 9 a.m. Eastern. And we also archive that show. So you you. can go to WCDB.com or WCDB.org. Scott, I've been talking about you, but I think we're going to have to say goodbye. (laughs) We've got about one more minute. We had a small we had a small infrastructure problem. Apparently. That's just what I said. We're talking about infrastructure. What happened with the telephone? (laughs) Really? Um, But basically, what I what I'd want to say is just. We need to have a discussion about what the realities are in terms of jobs in this country. We need to think about if new businesses are creating most of the new jobs, then how do we support that? If certain jobs are going to stay here and other jobs are likely to go away, how do we build on that base? 
and how do we cope with the, and help the people who are likely to have to shift because a lot of this is about adjusting to these long-term trends. We have to help people adjust. We can't just throw them out there, sink or swim. You know, these are public discussions. We all need to be a part of them. I agree with you. We can't adjusting, evolving, adapting. We have to adapt. I mean, we have a history of, you know, those people or those those uh, groups of people who weren't able to adapt died out. And if we can't adapt, and and and, and we just get caught up, I think what you've said in the book. I mean, in this political rhetoric all the time, and we're not really looking at what is and what are we going to do about it and how are we going to do it, uh, then we aren't going to adapt and we won't survive. Or we will, we'll, we'll survive. We'll still be here. But how we're going to be here and how we'll be here in the world may be very different if we're not able to, to, to do that. Don't you think? Absolutely. Yeah. The world, we adapt to the world. The world Thanks so much for being on adapt. the show this morning. Scott Thank Diddle. you very much for where Thank you for the jobs me. go. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. Ho- hope you had a good morning. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.